Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of which, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Jesus, this is a, a sacred moment, week in and week out. This is the time when you approach your bride and plant the seed of your word inside of our, the soil of our hearts so that it sprouts and grows and produces 30 and 60 and 100 fold fruit for the glory of your name and the blessing of the nations and the upbuilding of the church. It's a sacred moment, Lord. It's a powerful moment. It's a meaningful moment. It can be a life-shaping moment. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to feel something of the joy and sacredness of what's happening now, and I pray that you would come and by your word, Exalt your name in our eyes, I pray. I've prepared my notes, Father, but only you can properly exalt Christ in the way that he should be exalted today. And so I trust you for that. Cause Jesus, Lord, to become greater and greater and greater in our eyes that we might see him and savor him and worship him and obey him and love him and cling to him. Seek his will, seek his ways, seek his truth. Seek his glory. Oh, Father, come now. Be the blazing sun in the center of our universe. Orient everything in our lives around you, I pray. How I love you, Lord. I just took so much comfort this morning resting myself in the fact that when a man preaches the word in a way that's faithful to the word itself, he can be confident because the word of God is powerful and it produces many effects in the lives of people. And so I just rest myself now in the confidence, Lord, that you have spoken and you will speak. And I I give you my thanks, Father, for what you'll do now in my life, in the church's life, and for the sake of your name. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week we meditated together on Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. And we sought to join the angels in bowing down and worshiping Jesus, the one who is greater than the angels. There we saw that he is the heir of all things and the one through whom God created all things. 
He is the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's the one who upholds all things by the word of his power and causes them to work together for his glory and our good forever and ever. He's the one who made once for all purification for sins and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Beloved, this is a a realistic, valid vision of Jesus Christ, the one we know, the one we love, the one we worship, and he is glorious. He alone is worthy of our praise. He alone is worthy of our allegiance, our time, our affections, our attention, our souls, our lives, our all. Nothing else in this life is worth capturing our lives like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray as I've been praying that something of the glory of Jesus in these days, in this next year, as we journey through Hebrews, that it would land upon us as a church, that it would linger upon us as a church, that the aroma of the glory of Christ would come to characterize us as a church. I was thinking just this week of how a series of sermons can really shape the life of a people. Do you know that John Piper's book, Desiring God, which, which has just been used by God so mightily in the world, do you know that, that was originally a series of sermons in the life of Bethlehem? He just got up Sunday in and Sunday out and preached his heart out, and God did great things in the life of that church. And I just want to tell you that don't underestimate what God might do in our time here in Hebrews. Pray big things. Believe in a big God. He is glorious, and I'm praying that something of his glory will literally come and land upon us and linger upon us as a church in a way that characterizes us for as long as the Lord gives us life as a church. This week, I want to stay with chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, and I want to look with you at how the author is reading the Old Testament in the light of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews sees Jesus in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews builds his argument and exalts Christ above angels and above Moses and above the high priest and above the law and above all things on the basis of what he sees in the Old Testament. And so we would do well to slow down a little bit and understand how he's seeing what he's seeing of Christ when he sees Christ in the Old Testament. In some ways, I really wish that we could spend five, six years in Hebrews. Matt, I think you would definitely join me in this, because that way we could go through every single Old Testament quote and allusion in Hebrews, 104 of them at least, go back to the Old Testament, understand what's happening in the Old Testament, come back to Hebrews and understand how he's reading Hebrews in the light of Christ and exalting Christ in our eyes. It would take a long time to do all that, and I I don't think it's wisest for us to take five, six, seven years in Hebrews, so I'm not going to do that. In chapter 1, the author quotes seven particular texts. And so what I've decided to do, rather than looking at them all and being superficial with them all, I've decided to just press into one of them fairly deeply this morning. And then in the coming months, I'm sure here and there, we'll go into other texts. And the idea here is that by understanding how he's reading one text in the light of Christ, we'll come to understand how to read other texts in the light of Christ. But before we turn to Psalm 110, I want to articulate first 
a few foundational principles that will help us to truthfully and fruitfully read Jesus Christ into the Old Testament, or or rather, better put, see him where he is in the Old Testament. And then after I do that, we'll look at Psalm 110 and end up coming back to Hebrews near the end of the sermon. So for now, three foundational principles. First of all, we just need to assume that the gospel has always been plan A for God. The gospel is not God's plan B. So in other words, what I'm saying is, it's not as though when Adam and Eve sinned, God was surprised by that and then said, "Uh uh-oh, I better hurry up and come up with something to solve this sin problem because I didn't see this coming. That's not how it happened. The Bible teaches us very clearly that before God ever created anything, before the foundation of the world, he both conceived and planned the details of the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the ascension of the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the eternal reign of Christ. It was all in his mind from the beginning. And so from the dawn of creation to all of God's revelation that we have preserved for us in the Bible, through all of history, God has been doing everything he's been doing in the light of Jesus Christ. He has been organizing all of history and pressing it toward Christ and interpreting it in the light of Christ. Everything for God the Father is centered on Christ. And because that's true, we shouldn't be surprised that Christ is literally on every single page of the Old Testament. We shouldn't be surprised by that. So, assumption one. The gospel of Jesus Christ was plan A for God from before the foundation of the world. Number two is, as evidence of what I've been saying, both Jesus himself and the apostles preached Christ from the Old Testament. They didn't just refer to the Old Testament and say, yeah, that's some old stuff that God used to do, and now here's a new thing God is doing. That's not how they used the Old Testament. Rather, they went to the Old Testament and said, see Christ here, 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 and now he has come to be the fulfillment of all things. Jesus in Luke 24, 27 taught his disciples and he literally, oh, I wish I could have been there for this Bible study. He took them from Moses all the way through the entire Old Testament and showed them himself in all the scriptures, the Bible says. Jesus saw himself there. The apostles got the point. Paul in Acts 17, 1 through 3 goes into a synagogue and on three consecutive Sabbath days, so, so for three weeks in a row, he preaches Christ and proves that Jesus must be the Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. So again, he sees Jesus really and actually in the pages of the Old Testament and he preaches Christ from the Old Testament. That means Christ is actually there. And he refers to these things in Romans 15 and in in 2 Timothy 3 and in other places. It's a deep conviction of his heart. Christ is on every page of the Old Testament. Peter, one of my favorite texts about this is 1 Peter chapter 1. There Peter says that it was actually the Spirit of Jesus Christ that was in the prophets prophesying about Christ. So not only is Jesus on every page of the Old Testament, but the reason he's there is because his Spirit was the one inspiring the prophets to read about him. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that something to think about? 
And it gives, us, it gives us ample confidence that we can actually see Christ in the Old Testament in a way that's not disrespectful or destructive of the Old Testament. They saw him there. Peter said these things again in Second Peter. And, and, and John and actually every other author in the New Testament. There's only one letter in the New Testament that does not quote the Old Testament to point to Christ. And that letter is Philemon. That letter is very small. And it's just a letter from Paul to somebody else trying to, trying to secure some grace for a guy who was just released out of prison. So it had kind of an agenda, a very quick and brief agenda. Every other letter, every other book in the New Testament is filled with quotes of the Old Testament that are preaching Christ. They're, they're unmasking Christ from the Old Testament. So again, we are on solid ground to have the conviction that Jesus is literally on every page from Genesis to Malachi. And we should not only acknowledge this fact, but beloved, we should learn to seek for Christ there. When you read in the Old Testament, I don't know what plans you are on. I, I hope that all of you are on some kind of plan. Whatever reading plan you're on, when you're in the Old Testament, prayerfully look for Christ because he's there. And believe me, God will really cause you to grow as you grow in the ability to see Christ in the Old Testament. This leads to my third and final foundational principle. I'll have other things to say about this in future months, I'm sure. But for now, I just want to say that in order to see Christ truthfully and fruitfully in the Old Testament, we have to grow in our interpretive skills. And that's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take desire. And I just want to encourage you that it's worth learning how to see Christ in the Old Testament, so much so that, that it's better than spending time on, on our gadgets, on our phones, on games, on hobbies. I mean, there's a place for all of those things, but some of you spend so much time on your phones, it's ridiculous. Put those things down. Spend some time meditating on eternal things. Before probably this year is even out, your phone's going to be obsolete anyways, Right? And the next generation of something's going to come along to distract you. Put your eyes on eternal things. Again, there are places for our phones and all that stuff. I'm just saying it's worth the labor to learn how to read the Old Testament in the light of Jesus Christ. There's so much to be said about that. I can't go into it in a lot of depth now, but I do want to say this. The, the most important and most powerful way to learn to read the Old Testament in the light of Christ is to pay careful attention to how the New Testament authors see him there. When you look carefully at how a New Testament author sees Christ in the Old Testament, not only are you being trained to see Christ in that place, but you're being trained to see Christ all throughout the pages of, of Scripture. When you submit yourself to the New Testament authors and allow them to train you, you're allowing master interpreters to open your eyes as to how to read the Old Testament. And so that's why today I want to look at how the author of Hebrews is reading Psalm 110, and then we'll come back to Hebrews and see how it's supporting and advancing his argument. And with that, let's turn now to the main feast for the day, and please flip in your Bibles over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. We'll spend the most of our time here today, and then as I said, we'll go back to Hebrews and just spend a few minutes seeing how, how it's working there in Hebrews chapter 1. I do want to say, by the way, that the reason that I chose Psalm 110 today, of all the seven quotes that are in the uh, uh, chapter 1 of Hebrews, is because it plays such a prominent role in the Old Testament. Psalm 1, or in the New Testament, I'm sorry. Psalm 110 
is the most often quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is quoted and alluded to so often in the book of Hebrews that some scholars feel that Hebrews is nothing but a long commentary on Psalm 110. I think that's an exaggeration, but it plays a very prominent role in the book of Hebrews, and we'll, we'll see that as we move through it. And Psalm 110 is the unifying quote of Hebrews chapter 1, which we'll see at the end. So that's why I want to spend our time here today. This psalm was written by King David, and we must remember that it was a, a song to be sung by the people of Israel. So this wasn't just a book, it wasn't just a poem. It was a song that had music to it, and people would sing it, and in this way they would actually memorize it. They would have known every word of this psalm by heart, just like we know so many hymns and songs by heart. And so David had truth with which he wanted to inform the minds of the people of God, and with which he wanted to inflame the hearts of the people of God. These truths were to help us understand things about the purposes of God, and they were to ignite worship in our hearts as we see those purposes. There were intellectual and affectional aspects to Psalm 110, as it is really with every other psalm. And the main truth that David sought to highlight and exalt in the eyes and hearts of the people of God is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had made an inalterable decision and appointed this Lord that we'll look at here in a second to be the mighty and eternal king and priest who would rule and reign forever and ever. And so in the mind of David, God had made an unchangeable choice that would shape the destiny of the people of Israel. And David wanted those people to have that in their minds and to have that in their hearts. With this spirit in mind, we see that the opening line of Psalms of the psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, it both inspires us and puzzles us a little bit when we stop to think about it. So first of all, it inspires us because this statement is built on the firm foundation of the speech of God. The Lord says, the Lord says. This is the same speech that flung the universe into existence in Genesis 1. This is the same speech that promised everything to Abraham, blessing and land and nations. And so by the time a reader gets from Genesis to Psalm 110, he or she knows that the speech of God matters. When God speaks, beloved, things happen. When God speaks, things come into being. When God purposes, His purposes come about. And so when the Lord says, when the Lord says, it really matters. The speech of God has a great effect on the people of God. And so this inspires us. God has said something. God has made a proclamation. And whatever it is, it really, really, really matters. This, this phrase, though, inspires and it also puzzles us a little bit because of the word my in that verse. The Lord says to my Lord, if David, the great king of Israel, is writing this song, and he is, then who is he referring to when he says these words, my Lord? What does he mean? In order to answer this question, I've got to kind of take us on a little journey here, and, and it's going to cause us to put our thinking caps on a little bit. So I want us to pay attention in our Bibles to the fact that there are actually two lords in this psalm. The Lord said to my Lord. Look, look at your Bibles. Most of you will notice that in the first verse, that the first occurrence of the word Lord 
appears either in all caps or in small caps. So do you all notice that there? And can anybody tell me what is the Hebrew word then behind that word Lord in our English Bible? Say it out nice and loud. Yahweh, right? It's the Hebrew, the divine name for God, Yahweh. English translators, out of respect for Jewish people, don't translate that word literally because the Jews won't put that word on their lips. So the way that they show us that the word Yahweh is intended is they put the word Lord either in all caps or in small caps. So the Lord, Yahweh, is the first Lord in this text. Now look at the second occurrence of the word Lord. You'll notice that that one is not in all caps. The first letter is capitalized, but the other ones are not. That means that behind that word is the Hebrew word Adonai, which just means Lord or a ruler or somebody like that. So Yahweh said to my ruler, Yahweh said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Adonai. There are two lords in Psalm 110, and this is going to become really important in in just a minute here. So hold that in your mind, and we'll come back to that. Now let me re-ask the question. Who does David have in mind then when he writes the the words, my Lord? Who is my Lord? Three possibilities. One is that it's David himself, and David's being humble and referring to himself in the third person. So some of you are old enough to remember the political cycle when Bob Dole was in office. And remember, he always referred to himself in the third person. Bob Dole isn't going to do that. Bob Dole is going to do this, right? You remember that? Some say Dave's being humble, doesn't want to name himself, but he sees himself as this Lord. Others say, no, David's too humble for that. What happened was he had somebody in his court actually write this psalm for him about him. So it is referring to him, but David didn't write it. He was responsible for it, but he didn't write it. I don't think either one of those options are are in fact the case. The third possibility is that David is referring to the promised Messiah, the great deliverer of Israel, the fulfiller of the promises to Abraham and to Moses and to all of Israel through the prophets. I'm persuaded that this was the case. David had a vision of the Messiah, and he's writing of the Messiah, and he's calling this Messiah, my Adonai, my Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord. Yahweh said to the Messiah. Now, I don't know how much Jesus or David saw of this Messiah. I don't know if he specifically saw the form of Jesus and knew the name of Jesus. But I am certain that the Spirit of Christ in David caused him to see Christ and that he wrote of Christ intentionally from his mind. I think David was conscious of the fact that he was writing about the Messiah, and in so doing, he was seeking to press this truth into our minds and into our hearts. He wanted us to see the vision that God gave him on the day that he wrote this psalm. I know that I'm on firm ground to interpret the psalm this way, because this is how Jesus interpreted it. And it's always helpful when Jesus actually interprets a passage of Scripture, because that helps us know that we're interpreting it rightly or wrongly. And in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, the Lord interpreted this psalm as referring to himself. The Lord said that the my Lord in Psalm 110 was not David's descendant mainly, but as David's Lord, was the creator of everything. And so Jesus believed, and I believe, 
that David saw that the promise of God to put a, a, a descendant on his throne forever and ever would in a sense be his descendant, but much more profoundly be his Lord and the God of all things. David saw the divine nature of his offspring, the one to which God had been referring when he told him he would put a son on his throne forever and ever and ever. And I believe that taken by the Spirit of God and just wrapped up in the glorious vision of what he saw, David wrote to help us come into into that vision. He wrote Psalm 110 as a sort of portal so that we could see the glorious prophecy of the glorious King who was coming. And so with that purpose in mind, he wrote to put truth in the minds of the people and passion in the hearts of the people for this coming one. Now that we're clear about the identity of the two lords, Yahweh and the Adonai, the appointed Messiah, the coming one, we're in a place to understand that the rest of this verse points to something very important. Yahweh said to my Lord, what? Permanent, irreversible speech. What did he say? He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So in other words, Yahweh, the God of everything, handpicked and appointed the Messiah to be his vice regent over everything, and he, as a sign of his power, promised to put all things outside of himself underneath his feet to make them a footstool. Now, in the culture of the Bible, to sit at the right hand of the king was to share in the fullness of the power of that king. And to have enemies under your feet as a footstool was a way of saying they are totally under my control. So do you remember when we were in the book of Joshua, I paused at this moment a little bit to slow down and help us think about it because I think God put a prophecy about this in the book of Joshua when Joshua defeated those kings and then he had them brought out of the caves and he literally had his commanders stand over them and put their feet on the necks of those kings. This was a prophecy about the day when God would put all enemies under the feet of his vice regent, his son, the Messiah, the coming king. It's a sign of power. I have conquered you so thoroughly that I've completely incapacitated you by putting you under my feet. You're nothing more than a footstool to me. As I said last week, beloved, we should be aware of Satan, but if you're in Christ, you should not fear him because Christ looks at him and says, ah, that'll make a good footstool. That's how Christ feels. He does not tremble at Satan. And if we're in Christ, we should not tremble either. On the basis of this fundamental and unshakable promise of Yahweh to the Lord, Yahweh further promised to to send forth his mighty scepter from Zion, which I take to mean that his rule would extend from the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, all the way out to all the nations of the earth. This great king would not just rule the people of God, the Jews. This king would rule over all peoples, over all the earth at all times. And when you hear that, and certainly when any Jew heard that, what would start ringing in their minds is the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God told Abraham, I am going to bless you mightily. And I'm going to give you an offspring through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 that that word offspring isn't referring to a bunch of people, but to one person. One offspring, one seed. 
And that seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is this Lord whose scepter is being extended from Jerusalem to all the nations of the world, to rule over them, to bless them, to be their Lord and their leader in a number of ways. Because this promise from Yahweh is so sure, you'll see there that he then uh, encourages this Messiah King with the words, rule in the midst of your enemies. I just see this massive and mighty smile on the face of Almighty God when He says to His Son, I have appointed you. I have established you. I am putting your enemies under your feet, so rule, my Son, rule, and you will succeed. And you'll see in verse 3 there, the Lord continues, as you rule, the people will willingly offer themselves to you so that the fullness of their praise and holiness and strength will belong to you. Oh, beloved, you just got to learn to hear the words of Scripture in the way that, that Jewish people or, or, or believing people would hear them. For Yahweh to say to this Lord that the people will offer Him praise is for Yahweh to acknowledge that this one is more than just a man, but He is God. The Bible is clear. Yahweh says over and over, I will not share my praise with another. I will use men, but I will not share my praise. I will use women, but I will not share my glory. My glory, my praise belongs to me and it belongs to me alone. But of this one, he says, they will praise you. They will praise you. This is a signal that this one is more than a man. Every Jew would have understood that. David certainly understood that. As if this promise wasn't mind-blowing enough, Yahweh added to the glory and the calling of His anointed one by vowing in the strongest of terms in verse 4 that He would now appoint this king also as the high priest over His people forever. Let me speak the words. I've been meditating on this so much this week and not this morning, but yesterday morning, I woke up with these words in my mind. What glorious words to wake up to. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, He has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the Israelite culture, the roles of king and priest were strongly separated by the command of God. And so this was a very unusual and a jarring proclamation. I'm sure first to David and then to everybody who heard it, everybody who memorized it, everybody who sung it in their synagogue worship. Every Israelite who heard these words and memorized them and sung them out would have known that something is extremely unusual about this one. Because no king has ever served as a priest and no priest ever served as a king in the history of Israel. And the couple of times when people tried to mix up those roles, oh, there were big consequences to pay. We get to Hebrews 5 and 7. I'm going to take us back there so we see this. Because I want you to understand in the economy of God, you didn't have king priests. You had a king and you had a priest, but this one, most unusual, he's being appointed as a king and a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So then, who is this Melchizedek? I'm going to go into a lot more detail than that when we get to Hebrews 5 and 7, so I don't want to say much now. Let me just sort of cut to the chase. This Melchizedek is the only other person in the Bible of whom we know who served as a king and priest. 
and he served as the king priest of the city of Jerusalem in the days of Abraham, and he received offerings from Abraham. So he is, at the very least, a a typology of Christ. He's a metaphor of Christ. He's a prophecy of Christ to the world that someday a king priest will come to Jerusalem and he will rule here and he will reign here and he will intercede as a priest here. He will receive offerings here. So Jesus is like Melchizedek in the sense that he's combining these two roles that were otherwise not combined. The difference between Melchizedek and Jesus is that he will serve in this way forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. It's not yes today, no tomorrow. It's yes today, yes tomorrow, yes forever. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There will be no end to your reign. You will rule as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, mighty on your throne over all the nations of the world. And... You will rule as the mighty but merciful and patient high priest who once for all made purification for sins and now lives forever to intercede for the people of God. You forever will be the king and the priest. Oh, beloved, I can't imagine how David's heart would have been glowing with worship as the Lord opened his eyes to these glorious things. And I just know that he wrote with a desire to to help us enter into the glory of what God showed to him. The psalm continues, though, in verse 5. We're not done yet. David turns his attention and our attention to the actions of this king priest, and he shows that he will both be faithful to Yahweh and he will be sustained by the provision of Yahweh. So the reason I read verses 5 and following to be about this second Lord is because, again, look in your Bibles at verse 5. The word Lord is not in all caps. The word Lord is one capital letter, and then the rest are small letters. So this is the word Adonai. The Lord said to my Lord. Now it is this my Lord that's being addressed in verse 5. And the point here is that this my Lord has been faithful to Yahweh. He has been uh, um He's clung to him. He's remained focused on him. He has served him and never turned to the right or to the left. And because of this, he will shatter kings in his wrath and he will judge the nations and he will destroy chiefs and rulers all over the face of the earth. Now beloved, this is not a vision of Jesus Christ we often entertain, is it? We often think about Jesus with that soft flowing hair that wasn't anything like what his real hair was like, by the way. And we imagine him meek and mild and timid, touchy, the kind of guy that likes to sip lattes, talk about his feelings, yeah? There's this crazy term in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, talks about the wrath of the Lamb. You think about that. I, I, I don't often fear lambs. But here, this lamb has this thing called wrath. There's the wrath of the lamb. And you can see in Revelation 6, 15 through 17. I won't go there, but you can look at that later. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. That this lamb of God, who is gentle in his heart and patient in his heart, and all of that in his heart, 
He is also the king of kings who will execute the judgment of Yahweh all over the face of the earth and he will destroy kings. He will destroy rulers. He will destroy everything that will not bow the knee to Yahweh, to God the Father. That that is Jesus. This is a vision of who he really is, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's no character shift in God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Some of you believe that and it's just not true. God is the same yesterday, today, forever. His character is the same. Jesus is the same. And we must remember that this Jesus, gentle and mild, as he truly is, is not only gentle and mild, but he is the one who will conquer kingdoms and mete out justice all over the face of this earth. So as the anointed king-priest He obeys Yahweh and he executes his judgment. And as he does this, Yahweh puts all peoples underneath his feet. Yahweh causes him to have victory as he goes from one nation to the next, to the next, to the next. Just like Joshua, when he clung to the Lord, he conquered. You remember that lesson that we learned in the book of Joshua? Cling to God and you will conquer. Compromise and you will be conquered. Faithfulness is the path to the favor of God. And this, my Lord, this Adonai, this Messiah, this great king priest was absolutely devoted to the Lord. He absolutely clung to him from the depths of his heart. And because he was pleased to cling to Yahweh, Yahweh was pleased to let his power flow through this one so that he had ultimate and eternal victory. Do you remember the lesson we learned in the letter or in the book of Joshua when we said when we depend upon his might, the Lord our God will win the fight. When we cling to God, we will conquer. When we compromise, we will be conquered. This great king priest clung with all of his heart forever and therefore he conquered. And then you'll see in verse 7 that as he did that, he will drink by the brook by the way, from the brook by the way. I take this to mean that he will get his supply, his, refle- his refreshing, his satisfaction, his power, his wisdom, his purposes, his plans from his Father, from Yahweh. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that will always bear its fruit. Its leaf will never wither and every single thing he does will prosper and prosper and prosper and prosper. And we know that this is the way Jesus lived because of what he said. He said to people, listen, people, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm only saying what I'm hearing the Father saying. You see this? He's drinking from the brook. I'm saying what I'm hearing the Father saying. Listen, people, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm only doing what I see my Father doing. He's drinking from the brook. He's depending on his Father. And as he depends on his Father and acts on the basis of the words and will of his Father, success, success, success in every direction. Through heartfelt, clinging obedience, Yahweh puts all enemies under the feet of this Lord. Just a beautiful picture. Beloved, Psalm 110 is a glorious and prophetic vision of Jesus Christ who is this great king priest appointed by Yahweh and who will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. Why? Because the Lord has sworn and He will not change His mind. 
And once more I say that David's heart glowed with praise as he saw this glorious truth and he sought to put this truth in the minds and in the hearts of the people of God. He wanted them to know a great deliverer was coming. So with that, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1 now. I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, but I want to say something about now in light of all of that. How is the author of Hebrews using Psalm 110.1 to construct his argument? I've got this four quick steps I'm going to take with you here. First of all, notice in verses 2 through 3 that the author begins by making seven affirmations about the being of Christ, and he brings those to a crescendo with a clear allusion to Psalm 110 in verse 4 there. Remember, he was originally writing to Jews who had come to believe in Jesus, and when they heard these words that he ascended to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, they would get it. See, for them, these were like hymns. If I was to say to you just a phrase like, a mighty fortress is our God, a hymn would come to your mind, right? When David said, and the writer of Hebrews said, that's really more what I mean, when the writer of Hebrews said, the Lord says to my Lord, this hymn comes to their mind. They know exactly what he's talking about. They get it. So he, he, he affirms the glory of Jesus. He alludes to Psalm 110.1. And then second thing, he begins this string of seven quotes with two quotes that also refer to the kingship of Jesus which is what this sonship language is all about. Today I have made you my son. Without going into too many details, what that means is today I have put you in the place of the King of Kings and of the Lord of Lords. This language was all throughout the Old Testament. Kings being referred to as sons. And now this is the son of all sons. This is the one who will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. So the author is trying to say to the readers of Hebrews, Jesus is more than who you think he is, beloved. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the appointed ruler forever and ever and ever and ever. Have eyes to see. Third thing then, because of who Jesus is, he gives another just a string of quotes that teach us that even the angels of heaven bow down and worship this one, so great is he. This one is even called God in Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. He quotes that in verses 8 and 9. This one was actually identified, fully identified with Yahweh in all of his creative power, and he will therefore never wear out. He will never go away. His years will never have an end. That's a quote in verses 10 through 12 that's coming from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And the point is that, that the author is saying on the basis of the kingship of this great one we call Jesus, we just have to understand he's greater than who we think he is. He is the reigning king. He is worshipped by angels. He is in fact God. And everything came into being through him. And he will never wear out. He will never go away. And you'll never wake up on some morning and say, oh no, Jesus isn't there anymore. It won't happen, beloved. He'll be there today, tomorrow, and forever and ever and ever. Fourth thing then, this leads the author back to Psalm 110, and he quotes it word for word in verse 13. And what he's doing is in this way saying to his readers, look, my readers, Look, the beloved of God, listen to me. 
I alluded to Psalm 110 in verse 3, and now I'm quoting it here in verse 13. I'm making what scholars call an inclusio. I'm making a, like, like, like parentheses around these texts to say, read all of these texts in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. He is the great king priest who has come to rule and reign forever and ever. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who will be the Messiah, who will be the King, who will be the High Priest forever. If you put yourself, beloved, in the skin of first century Jewish readers, your breath would just be taken away as you realize that this Jesus who you thought you knew was actually the one who fulfilled a more than 900-year-old prophecy written by David in Psalm 110. And I just know that the design of God this very morning is to take our breath away as we realize that this Jesus we think we know is the fulfillment of a now 2,900-year-old prophecy about him that David wrote in Psalm 110. He is greater than the angels. He is not to be compared to them. He has so much more glorious to them that they fade away in the light of his glory. He is the one who is the heir of all things and the creator of all things and the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's the one who's upholding things by all of his power because he is God. He's the one who as a priest made purification for sins and he is the one who received these words, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Beloved, this is Jesus. And I say to you again, that I've been praying for weeks and weeks, and I, I ask you to join me in praying this, that something of the glory of who Jesus is would genuinely land upon this church and linger upon this church and change our lives. Do you know the Word of God has the power to actually change your life? It does. The glory of Christ is the means of our transformation. We see his glory and we're changed into his image from one glory to another. So please, don't think small things and don't pray small prayers. Pray with me that the glory of Christ would come and rest upon this church, which is amazingly called glory of Christ. He did that. I was there when we named the church, beloved. It wasn't some great plan. We prayed and he said, name the church this. There were three different people that came to me and said, you know, pastor, I think we should name the church this. He means something great for us, beloved. Pray with me. Pray with me. Pray with me about that. I want to draw our time to a close here. I just want to take about five more minutes. And I want to think with you just for a few minutes about why it's worth taking our time to understand how the authors of the New Testament were reading the Old Testament in the light of Jesus Christ. Again, there's so much to say about this, but I just want to offer you three compelling reasons that maybe this afternoon you put the phone down or the game down and, and dig into Hebrews chapter 1. might be more worth your time. First of all, learning to read the Old Testament in the light of Christ builds our faith. It just does. The more we come to understand about the development in the history of the Bible, the more we see that it had to be God Almighty that was in control of the development of the Bible. I mean, I've been studying the history of how the Bible was written and how it was preserved. I've been studying that for over 20 years now, and the more that I grow in my understanding, the more I just throw my hands up and say, nobody could have made all this stuff up. 
It's just too far-fetched for all of it to just have happened. It's too far-fetched for, someone to, for this just to be a big scheme. There's no way. And the more you understand about this, I'm telling you, beloved, it will build your faith to see that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, is the God of today, is the God of tomorrow, is the God of forever. Some of you in the last week or two, I don't know if all of you know, but Kim was able to find a, a job, and we praise God for that. We're so grateful. Some of you have really encouraged us in the last week or two and told us how you admired the faith that we have displayed in the last months. And I really appreciate your encouragement of us. It means a lot to us when you encourage us like that. But I just want to say to you, our faith did not come out of nowhere. I've been spending years and years of my life studying the Bible. And when you come to see that the God of the universe controls the whole universe and that he's perfectly in control of the entire flow of history, makes it all flow toward Christ, and makes it all flow from Christ, and does it with such perfection and precision, then listen, it's not a big deal when you ask him, Lord, are you able to help us with our financial problem? Are you able to help us with our health insurance problem? Are you able to help us with the disease that my wife has? Are you able to help it? Well, of course he's able to help. He can control all of history. He can handle my problems. I'm telling you, beloved, learning to read the Old Testament in the life of Christ will build your faith, and it's worth the time, therefore. Second thing, learning to read the Old Testament in the light of Christ, a related point, will develop your trust in the Bible. Do you know that this book was written by, over, by about 40 people? over a period of about 1,500 years, when you read it from cover to cover, it could seem like they all got together in a conference room and sort of plotted how to put this thing together, but I'm telling you, it wasn't possible because people don't live 1,500 years, yeah? So 40 people did not get in a room and figure all this stuff out. And don't assume that, that the later authors always had access to the writings of the earlier authors because they didn't. Sometimes people who wrote parts of the Bible were completely in isolation, and yet when you read their work uh, compared to the other parts of the work, it's seamless as though somebody was in control, yeah? I'm telling you, when you understand more of how the Bible is woven together and that the central thread of the Bible is Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation, it will greatly develop your trust in the Bible, and it will develop your ability to speak with gentleness but with truth and boldness to people who want to question the veracity of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. Third thing, and I absolutely want to end on this note, learning to read the Old Testament in the light of Christ ignites worship in our hearts for Christ. The point of seeing Christ in Scripture is not just to understand more things, but to have a heart that longs to worship Him. Beloved, knowledge of Christ is the fuel for worship. Knowledge of Christ is like wood on the fire, and the flames of the fire are like the worship of our hearts. And so He informs our mind to inflame our hearts that we might live lives of worship. And the more you see Christ where all the Old and New Testament authors saw Christ, the more you will bow down with the angels and worship Him, worship Him, worship Him with all of your hearts. So learn this lesson, beloved. Let the New Testament authors train you. 
Let them teach you how to see Christ in the Old Testament because he's there. The more that you do that, the more your faith will grow, your trust in the Bible will will grow, your desire to worship Jesus will grow. In that spirit, let's pray now. Father, I pray that these last things that I've said would be more than words in a sermon, but that they would come true in our lives. I ask you, Father, to develop our faith by your word, to to develop our trust in your word, and to ignite heartfelt worship by your word. Lord, we love you. We long to love you so much more, and we just want to worship you in a rightful way. So come now, Lord. Let your word have its designs in our hearts and in our minds, and we give you our thanks and our praise for what you will do. In the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.